The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, thank you for the gift of music and the sweet way that you have created us to hear truth in a way that touches our hearts differently than just the spoken word. And that that song, Lord, that you just put before us here, before this text about you being our help, thank you for that. And would you do what we just sang and asked you to do? Would you help our unbelief? But I, I, I trust that my brothers and sisters here understand that song and are in touch with themselves enough to know that we cannot repent and we cannot love and we cannot rest unless you help. We need you so desperately. We can do some things without you, but they are inconsequential meaningless. Anything that matters apart from you, we can't do it. So help us, Lord. Be our help. With these things that we sang about just now, in all of life, be our help. And glory you have sworn yourself to it for us who are in Christ. Amen, amen, amen. So we pray to you and say thank you that you are our help and we ask you to be our help. We pray confidently that you will come, you will intervene in life to make us what you mean for us to be, which is good. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray now open up this text and cast further light on what has already been shown to us. Show us Christ as our help. Show us all the ways in which you are our help. Show us some of the end toward which you are our help. And show us how to submit to you, our helper, that we might find what we need, what we are looking for, and what you mean for us to be blessed with. So open up your word, Lord. Open up our hearts to hear it. Honor Christ in our midst and build your church, please. I pray this in his name. Amen. Turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 7, where we find a highlight of Israel's interaction with the Lord, which is a nice change because we have seen now for several chapters lowlights, hard reality after hard reality after hard reality as the people of God and the Philistines, the people of God acting like Philistines, try to treat God as someone they can control and manipulate and and he not having anything of it disciplines them. So it's been difficult to to read and interact with, but that changes today in chapter 7 with a a marvelous passage, which has one verse in it that you you likely know. It's in a song that we sing sometimes, a song about uh, an Ebenezer. But we'll see, we'll see that verse. We'll see more than just that verse. And, and as a whole, this passage stands as a bookend. If, if, if you haven't been here in a while and, and maybe were here but have forgotten, it stands as a bookend, this passage with an Ebenezer, to another chapter, chapter 4, that has an Ebenezer in it. And these things are looking at each other, and there's a point in that which we'll come to. But to refresh ourselves, back in, reaching back into chapter 4, Israel fought another battle with the same Philistines back then and lost round one and devised a strategy by which they could surely win round two. They decided to fetch the Lord 
by bringing his ark and taking control of him and bringing the ark to the battlefield. And it all backfired. The Lord refused to be used by them. And so to teach them that point, let the Philistines win a crushing defeat and was carried off, the ark itself carried off as captive into the land of the Philistines. And though the ark returned back eventually, as we saw, as we traced the events through chapter 5 and chapter 6, the ark came back to Israel. The spiritual climate in Israel was still pretty much the same as when it left seven months before. And so the ark proved harmful to the Israelites again. And several men were, 70 men were struck down by the Lord when they treated the ark improperly. So they set the ark aside and essentially leave it alone safely in the land, but avoided. That's what brings us to our text for this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 7, where God's going to break the stalemate. He's going to intervene through Samuel to be their help. So with that, let me read. I'll read 1 Samuel chapter 7, and I'll begin in verse 1. But we already covered verse 1. I'll read the whole chapter. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only. And He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. They were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. First Samuel chapter 7. As we saw, when, when the ark comes back, basically it is set aside and the Israelites avoid it for, as it puts it, a long time. 20 years. And it says there that for those 20 years, the Israelites lamented after the Lord. They mourned after Him, like a people grieving for something that's been lost. 
not able to find it. This is a mixed statement about the Israelites. It is Godward in a very real sense. It is, it is after the Lord. It's Godward and there's a, a sorrow there. There's a real, there's something in the heart going on there. But perhaps due to ignorance or perhaps due to some, some misinformation, there's, there's some only halfwayness to it. It's not actually changing anything for 20 years. They're lamenting after the Lord, and they are stuck then in a state of sorrowful distance from God, missing Him, though they have an idea who they're missing. And then Samuel speaks, verse 3, to clear things up. Seeing them in this lengthy, wavering state, he calls them to make a decision. If, in fact, if you are returning to the Lord, if you're really going to do it with all your heart, wholeheartedly do it. This is a call to repentance. This is the Old Testament's language for repentance, to turn or to return with the heart. He calls them to repent. The people over these years had been pursuing God with a mixed heart, lamenting after Him while, as it's clear, worshiping these other gods, kind of like pursuing and reaching while holding something else right here. The foreign gods, the, the Baals, male gods and female gods, gods, gods and goddesses of the lands. They're holding on to these things while pursuing him. He says, you can't have that. God had not delivered them because they were not fully set on him. They're lamenting after the Lord while mixing something. A technical word here, syncretism. Israel's common problem. Think of synchronizing watches, putting two things together. They never actually ever abandoned Yahweh entirely. They just joined him into all kinds of other stuff. And that's the problem. And so he points that out, and the people respond wholeheartedly, cleansing themselves of this idolatry. Verses 5 and 6 talk more, more about that. They come together, Samuel prays for them, they pour out water before the Lord, and they fast. Sometimes the pouring out water might be about a sacrificing of a need. You need water to live. You need food to live. So they fast and pour out water. Maybe that's what he's getting at. Probably, though, it's water for cleansing. Signifying a ceremonial washing of the people. This is a people who are coming clean before the Lord. We have sinned before you, they say. They're confessing and repenting, fasting in sorrow. And they all gathered there at the town of Mizpah. And it probably went on for a little while because it says that Samuel judged the people there, probably teaching them and instructing them. And there was time enough for the Philistines to hear about the gathering and to collect an army and to come. They come probably thinking that the Israelites are going to be gathering together to rebel. The Philistines still control them. And Israel hears about it and rightfully fears. And look how they respond this time. There is no, let's go get the ark and use it as a magic weapon. They, they had the ark, remember? They could have done that again, but they didn't. Instead, they speak to Samuel, do not cease crying out to the Lord for us, that He may deliver us like you said He would. Up in verse 3. You said he would deliver us from the hand of the Philistines. Here it is, and we cast all of our hope on that outcome. Cry out to him, cry out to him, don't stop. And so Samuel goes to the Lord on their behalf, and he cries out, and he offers a burnt offering. Burnt offerings throughout the law were used for many different things, but the heart of them all is a pleasing offering to the Lord. Something that lifts up an aroma that pleases God. He offers this offering. He intercedes and says, Lord, deliver them. And verse 10 sets all these things up, pointing out that they are simultaneous. As Samuel was offering up the offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. Get, get the setting. They're probably on a hill. Armies traditionally would place themselves on a hill. They're on a hill. People gathered around. And Samuel is there with an altar, with an animal on it, cut open, burning, praying, and there, I mean, right there are the Philistines, weapons in hand, approaching. As they are marching up, you know, warfare happened at point-blank range, 
So they had to march up, and there they are. I mean, what strong temptation to go to plan B. Whatever plan B is, now's the time to enact it. But they don't. Do not cease crying out. And he offers up the offering. And then at that moment, the Lord thundered from heaven, scattered them, and Israel chased them to the sea. An amazing moment. An amazing moment. In verse 12, the one you might know, the Ebenezer of chapter 4 is mirrored now with another Ebenezer. Samuel raises up a stone and says, Till now the Lord has helped us. You might have a footnote that says, Ebenezer means stone of help. In two words put together, stone of help. God helped them right there in a dramatic way. And from then on, it says his hand was continually against the Philistines. In that one moment, he cried out and he and. And the Lord delivered, and then from then on, he cried out. As long as he lived, as long as Samuel had life, he cried out, and the Lord's hand was heavy against the Philistines. Not that trouble ceased. It's just that the Lord's hand was constantly against the Philistines, delivering his people. And they had peace with the Amorites, too, who were the people who lived in the land when they conquered it. So they had external peace, and they had internal peace. And Samuel judged them all the days of his life. Ongoing help from the Lord through the ministry of Samuel the judge interceding to the people as they submitted to him. That's the text. Overall, a wonderfully encouraging text and an instructive one. So let me express the main point that I think it teaches us this morning. The Lord helps us in Christ because of Christ. So trust Him fully in Christ. The Lord helps us in Christ because of Christ. So trust Him fully in Christ. I'm going to make two observations about that. Here's the first one about what God gives. God has provided an intercessor to deliver those who fully depend on him. This is good news. God has provided an intercessor. Someone who stands between, who's a go-between, who has the ear of someone on behalf of some other one. A mediator of a relationship, an intercessor, who will then ask this one to act on behalf of that one. God has provided an intercessor to deliver those who fully depend upon him. That's Samuel here in this passage, obviously. And we are supposed to focus on Samuel because he's in this passage. Or perhaps we might say, because he's back. If if you were just reading this straight through you might notice something. We've had several chapters with no Samuel in them, though the book is named Samuel. This is a story about Samuel with no Samuel. Four, five, and six are about something else. And then suddenly, here, without any further introduction, verse 5, then Samuel said, he just reappears right on center stage talking. So we're supposed to look at Samuel. What's going on with him? What is he doing here? draws our attention. Previously in the book, we have seen him as a priest and as a prophet, and now he is a judge. It says that three times, verses six, three verses in 6 and in 15 and 16. Remember who the judges were. And this still is in the period of the judges. He is the final judge, which is interesting. The judges were those a combination of military and political leaders that were raised up by the Lord to deliver His people after they'd walked through this cycle. This, things are going well, they abandon the Lord, turn away, He disciplines them, and at the low point they begin to look for Him and cry out to Him, and He responds and raises up a judge who delivers. 
that cycle. Well, we're seeing it right here. The Lord raising up a judge to deliver them. Samuel. He's a judge, though, interestingly, who acts to deliver how? What's his posture? Think about his posture. How does he act? How does Samson act to deliver? Sword or jawbone in hand, swinging it. How does Samuel act to deliver? Not with a weapon in his hand, but like this. This is the final judge whom God raises up to deliver his people by sacrifice and prayer, not by weapon. Fascinating. He speaks to them in verse 3 and calls them to repentance. More on that in a moment. In verse 5, he prays for them. He's he's the go-between. Verse 6, they come repentant and he judges them, probably teaching them, as I said, a little more. The crisis comes, verse 8, he continues to cry out for them and offers up a pleasing sacrifice. And it says, the Lord answered this one for them against them. See, see the chain there. Who's praying? Not the people. The intercessor, the judge is praying. And the Lord hears Samuel and delivers the people against their enemy. The intercessor is critical. The one who stands between. From that day on, the relationship that they had with the Philistines changed forever. The Lord took sides because of the intercessor. God provided, provided someone to intercede to deliver. One who sacrifices and prays. Okay. I hope by now you know what I'm going to say next. Part, part of what, I, what I'm doing, what, part of what my role is in God's economy of a church is to teach you how to read your own Bibles. So I hope that you know what this is talking about. Who this is talking about. What a wonderful picture this is of what God has provided for us in Christ. It doesn't get much more clear. God has done something graciously done something marvelous to give us an intercessor and not just a temporary one that we could say, well, as long as he lives, he prays and the Lord's hand is for us. But we can instead say along with the writer of the Hebrews, he, Hebrews, he always lives to intercede for his people. We have a Samuel, but a new and better Samuel. We have a judge who is a leader and a king and an interceder who offers up sacrifice of what? Of himself. Perfect and pleasing, cleansing of sin, and prays always, always hearing yes from a father who is pleased with him. What a very strong and very clear type that is a model picture we have here of what the Lord would give to us in Christ. And may your worship, may thanksgiving in your heart grow as you see this is God's help, His deliverance to us to give us Christ. Marvelous. But that's not the complete message that we need to get here from this first point. Because this isn't given only to help us to identify who the intercessor would be and what his ministry would be like. It's also given to us to point out how to experience this ministry that Christ will execute. How did the people of Israel come to experience the ministry of Samuel? They came, finally, Humble and broken in wholehearted, surrendered dependence. Major point. 
God has provided an intercessor to deliver those who wholly, fully, humbly depend on Him. Verse 3. Well, verse 2. There is a certain Godwardness in them that isn't enough. There is a certain Godwardness among us, perhaps, among people who sit here, maybe in you, Christians, those who think they are Christians, those who don't think they are Christians. There is a certain Godwardness even among people out in the world who know something. Maybe they used to go to church sometime in the past, or maybe their neighbor told them something about Jesus. There's some a certain Godwardness and an idea of that's what I need. Maybe a remembering of oh, I used to have, or I saw my mother or my grandmother used to. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if there there is. A sorrow that isn't sufficient. There is an understanding and a consciousness that's not enough because ultimately what this passage points out to us, verse 3, it is combined with, it is held along with arms full of foreign gods, the gods of the land. I want that. I see there's something there I need. I can't grab it though because my hands are full already. I hold on to and I carry along with me so many other things that all I can do is look with my eyes and... and uh. What's the answer? Then put away the foreign gods and turn to Him. Then He will help you. And notice the phrases, all your heart, direct your heart. Serve Him only in verses 3 and in verse 4. That's language, men and women, that is language about single focus. That's language about single-mindedness. He is not telling them, worship the Lord as if they had completely stopped. He's telling them to stop changing the first commandment to read, you shall be sure to include me with the other gods you worship. It does not say that. Stop making it too. Wholehearted, single-minded focus. Put away the other gods. Now these other gods, they, they had names and they had little statues and they had temples. For us, that's not often the case. Or at least they don't have names that sound like the names you would give to gods. They're called football and food and sex and friends and approval and rest and pleasure and order and peace and quiet and money and security and safety. They're called all kinds of normal-sounding stuff. A lot of them, those things are fine. It's the problem of worship. The problem of worship order. I, I, I can say this, and you've heard me say this before, I, I imagine. I can say this. You can hear it and understand it. I can hear it and understand it. But it does not change the reality that we are constantly bringing to the forefront and setting up again a host of idols. It's how this heart works. In a very real sense, we could read this passage and read this passage and again, and again, there isn't a one-time deal. I've set aside the idols of the world. I am done with them, never to see them again. They are going to come back. And my wandering heart will go and resurrect them. 
on purpose. Because they serve some need, at least in the short run. They serve some need. I, I see an enemy advancing and I have a plan B. And, and I, I think I can fix that. And maybe in the short term, in the immediate, that idol will deliver from something. But it will not deliver in the long run. The sorrow of those who run after other gods will multiply, says Psalm 16. Samuel points out the problem to the people of Israel. They hear it and they heed it and they dump the other gods and they come declaring a fast saying, we have sinned, God help. And they remarkably do not resort to plan B in the face of great pressure. That's how the Lord's help came to them. They stayed wholehearted and focused, repentant from all the other options. So does that depict us? That's, that's kind of the, the thrust here, the, the punch, if you will, in this part of this passage for us. Because once you've realized that we have a new and better Samuel in the ministry of Christ, we are made to ask, how does our heart submission to him look? What does it look like? Because knowing is of little consequence in itself. Knowing that God has graciously, marvelously provided an intercessor, a, 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 a Messiah, to wipe away the penalty of our sin and to be actively engaged in your life as a help, knowing that is good, but only if you then respond to it in a, in a surrender to it which will involve a degree of vulnerability. A giving up of the other options. So brothers and sisters, does he have all your heart? Do you serve him only? Have you any other gods that you need to put away? Material things, desires, attitudes... And where you find, as you certainly must, the answer is, no, I don't serve him with all my heart. No, I don't serve him only. Then we sing the song, help me with my unbelief. I believe, help me with my unbelief. I see this, I want this, help me. And marvelously then, there's a second point to consider. It comes from the familiar verse in the passage, the one about the Ebenezer, verse 12. So here's the point. Remember and believe that the Lord is our help in Christ. Always and forever. Remember and believe. Always and forever. Verse 12, after the battle, Samuel took a stone and set it up and called its name Ebenezer and said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So what exactly is he trying to do there in that? Honoring the Lord, yes. But he's trying to, to set up a, a little monument, a little sign that carries a message that will remind God's people and then motivate them to fully depend on the Lord. So that they'll see that, that rock and they'll remember, oh, this is where He won that battle for us. And from that point on then, always and forever, He became our deliverer. His hand was against them ongoing. This is a God who helps His people, is what Sam was trying to say, whose hand is strong on your behalf. So trust Him tomorrow to be that same helping, delivering God. Look, remember, He did it. 
That's the point. Let me lift up a rock to which I will repeatedly direct your attention to remember what God has done and to remind you that He will still be that God tomorrow. Let me lift up a stone in front of you to which you can look to remember how God has been your help and to motivate you to trust Him tomorrow to be your help. I hope you know what I'm going to say next. We have a great Ebenezer. Far better than a rock in a desert somewhere. We have a stone who has been lifted up, a great rock of help, lifted up on a cross, to which our attention is repeatedly drawn in the Scriptures and by God the Spirit as He speaks to you to say, look, He was your help on one particular day. As the enemy approached, He scattered them on that day. And from then on, His hand has been heavy against every one of your foes for you. As long as that intercessor lives. We have a great help who has made us clean by His sacrifice, who has declared us friends and made us objects not of wrath, but of help, of grace. Do you know this help? Do you know Him? I'm, I'm talking about looking back to the cross. Remember when God, when God helped you, has that happened in your life? Has He helped you? Have you surrendered to Him in the first place? There is an offer here that would change your life if you would hear it and embrace it. But tragically, there is an enemy of your soul that works on you to, even at this very moment, try to make you think about anything else. There, there are people in the room, people who will hear this, who do not know Christ, and right now there is someone talking to you trying to distract you who hates you and will destroy you. But there is, there is a great helper of your soul. And may He powerfully, omnipotently plead with you and speak to your head and your heart right now. You need help. Here it is. Look. Apart from Him, you will be lost. And Christian, you have a helper. And gloriously, you are never apart from Him. He has won you to Himself and has for you then vast, wide, long, high, deep, passionate love will never leave you nor forsake you. You have at your side the one who sits enthroned between the cherubim, omnipotent. What other kind of help do you need? That speaks to you a message of sure aid. This is very hard. This is very hard because all kinds of stuff happens to us. I, I, I'm just imagining, I, I don't know the details, I'm imagining what it looked like when the Israelite standing there looking at the altar with Samuel locked eyes on the Philistine soldier. Do I have a help or not? That needs to be answered right quick. That's where we live. Eyes locked on the danger in your life, the, the trouble that you face. Do you have a help? Yes or no? That needs to be answered. And ultimately, the answer is the cross. Now, I encourage you, raise up other Ebenezers, as folks are like to do, 
gather mementos remembering God's deliverance of you in past events. Amen. Those are helpful. Those can remind you. That's what Samuel's doing and making a little stone here. But ultimately, all those things are subject to reinterpretation. Or misinterpretation. I thought God was doing this there, and I, and I even wrote that down as God's great deliverance, and then I found out a year later, actually, that was a big problem. Those things will be open to reinterpretation or misinterpretation. They can be helpful. I do it. But ultimately, over top of that, in front of it, however you put that, we must look at the cross and say, do I have a help? Yes or no? Yes. He has given me Christ to help me with my greatest need. Will He not along with Him also give me everything else? What can separate you from that love? Nothing. This is very hard. It is very hard to consider. He might, the soldier might walk up and actually strike me down. And my helper will still be delivering me even in that. So Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego said, And that's still true. There is no promise that you will never face trouble. There is a promise that you will be helped in it towards what you really need. Towards deliverance from all of your enemies of the soul. Towards conformity to God's image who is Christ. So lift up the cross as your greatest Ebenezer. A reminder that He has given you His help and it is surely yours forever. And raise up other Ebenezers too in life to to see particular places where He's helped you, but raise them up beneath the cross. But raise up those other Ebenezers. That's a good thing. But there's one more thing we need to consider so that we don't miss something that's very important here. And I'll approach this by by asking a question of verse 12. He says, Till now the Lord has been our help. Up till now. The word till, up till now, makes one ask, since when? Up till now. Beginning when till now has the Lord been our help? And while there is, of course, a very real sense from the very beginning, He has purposed good for His people from before time began. The answer that this text is focusing on is in that mirror of the Ebenezer's. This was not the start of His help. We might be tempted to say verse 10 was the start of his help when he thundered against them. That's not the start of his help. Because think about it. He acted in response to the intercessor, Samuel. How is it that Samuel is the one there interceding and not Hophni and Phinehas? And how is it that Samuel is the judge and not wicked Eli? Because of the first Ebenezer. how helpful God was in chapter 4 at the Ebenezer. Painful for Israel. A disaster. But oh, so very helpful. 20 years later, 20 years, a long time. The point here, in tying together these two Ebenezers, is to underline one difficult to understand point. The Lord, I'll put it like this, 
The Lord is always the help of his people, even if it doesn't seem like he's helping his people. Even when his help comes in the form of affliction. Let me put it another way. We are inclined, Israel would have been inclined, to look at chapter 4 and God's passive non-engagement as they bring the ark into the camp, the camp at Ebenezer. And God does nothing. They would have been inclined to say, the Lord refused to help us. And in one sense, he did, of course. He refused to help them like they wanted him to help them, which was, oh, so very helpful of him, wasn't it? He refused to help us with our agenda. Thank God. That's what they should have said. And 20 years later, what they would say. He refused to be helpful at Ebenezer so that he could be helpful at Ebenezer, which was very helpful at Ebenezer, was it not? A point that can be seen on the other side. And sometimes we see how the Lord helpfully works all things for our good in Christ. And sometimes we see it in 20 years. And sometimes we never see it. I wonder how many people died in those 20 years thinking, man, God screwed us. And I put it like that because that's how they would have put it. Are you not tempted to say just that very thing? Maybe with a different word, a different word one way or the other. Man, where was he? What in the blank was he doing there? What kind of God is that? What in the... But because you are in Christ, all things are being worked for your good, even the calamities. Even when it doesn't seem like He is helping even when we ourselves sin, even when He refuses to cooperate with our proud, idolatrous, mixed-hearted cries to Him, also helpfully, He will not confuse us by cooperating with our idolatry. So He won't help us to help us. How good of Him. He will not mislead us by delivering us into our selfish agendas and proud autonomy. Instead, He will do whatever it takes to deliver us from that. How helpful of Him. How kind and merciful and gracious and helpful He is to smash our idols and tear down everything that clogs our hands and keeps us from having hold of the One in whose presence there is fullness of joy and life evermore. So use Christ's cross as Samuel meant for Israel to use that rock to know that He is good for you and a help to you and therefore is always a help for you. In good and in seemingly bad times, even in calamity, and that is very hard to do. If we put together words like helpful and cancer, Helpful and stroke and infidelity and poverty, abuse, death, helpful. What kind of nut are you? It's not helpful. Disaster is not helpful. But wait, wait, Christian, step back. Yes, it is. I did not say it is good. It could be evil. Straight up, flat evil. Which is different. I'm not saying it is good. I'm saying it is helpful and worked to the good. 
And if you want to then think about that in a different way, that means that that's good for us. Even while it can be painful and even while it might be just flat evil, wicked. I'm not trying to say that all those words I just used are good and wonderful and right. I'm saying what the Bible says, that the standing rock points out for us that because you are in Christ, He works everything, even the calamities, to do good to you and does not withhold any good from those who walk uprightly. So it says Psalm 84. That's hard. But that's what faith is. Trust in Christ when it makes little sense to the natural eye and the normal feelings. It is not mindless trust. It is a trust that is looking at the cross while it looks at the locked onto the eyes of the soldiers and looks at the two and decides which one dominates. I will take the cross and the empty tomb and I will bank my life on that. That's what faith is. It's what we are called to and what we are promised will bring a harvest of righteousness if we do not grow weary. Along with Christ, will He not give you all things Are not all spiritual blessings yours in Christ in the heavenly places? Do you not have an inheritance kept in heaven for you who believe? Yes. The Lord helps us in Christ because of Christ. So trust Him fully in Christ. And give some time right now for a minute to think and to respond to repent if you need to, to ask Him for help, to turn your heart. Just talk, talk to Him. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.